As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. going on guys welcome to another episode of bro history it's henry zamoda and danny abdeljabar um how are you today danny i'm chilling man as per usual um pretty excited that uh this will probably be one of the last podcasts that we do from these Ever. locations <laughs> yeah so good news and bad news uh, the good news is is that we are going to be solving pretty much 90% of the audio issues that we have with this show. Um, they all come from they all come from the fact that we are recording off uh, very um, archaic equipment and not in recording environments that you would call uh, audio friendly. But yeah. I'll, I'll complete your sentence here. We're basically going to fix a lot of that, you know, with uh, different locations. And um, the bad news here is that, well, we might not have a bro history episode for you next week. Um, so we're going to take a little break. Um, but it's a good break. Uh, it'll also give us, frankly, some time to, to think about some good topics and stuff. So uh, if you have anything that you're really, really interested to hear about, you know, unless something crazy happens in the news that we just absolutely have to cover, like send us, you know, your uh, suggestions. Let us know what what you think you'd like for us to cover. Um, and thankfully, I think today, you know, we're going to be doing a topic that's not like a current event news. Uh, we're back to our, you know, bro history basics uh, with some history stuff. Uh, Henry, I think your signers probably has to be over by now. So why don't you jump in and tell us what we're going to talk about today? Yeah, so uh, today we decided to alienate at least, at the very least, half of our audience, and we're going to talk about the Civil War. Um, we're going to, uh, we've been talking about doing a podcast on the Civil War for a while now, and we were going to do it in like a debate style, like an Oxford style debate. But then it kind of felt pretty corny because neither Danny or I are Civil War historians. So I feel like it wouldn't even be appropriate for us to kind of like debate over this because. In, Neither of us are Civil War experts. You know, we both we know we know some stuff, but uh, we decided to make this more of an episode, um, more of a search for truth or just like comparing notes. Like I did my research. I, I've been doing my research on the Civil War. You know, what do you like? What's what's your research say? And uh, really just helping us come to a uh, better conclusion about the conflict, because the Civil War is one of those issues that is sloganeered um, like every major war it is sloganeered to death and oversimplified to where it doesn't even really make too much sense so the main narrative that you hear and this is the narrative that is taught in public school um or at least the narrative that i was i i, I don't want to say public school um but like elementary schools that you know the civil war was about ending slavery and i've always found that a kind of a, a weird 
uh, proposition, you know, how was the Civil War about ending slavery? Like, they, like, the North invaded the South to liberate the slaves. And I feel like that's, like, kind of a, a silly, oversimplified uh, conception of the Civil War. Um, like, like all wars, it's, it's a lot more complicated than that. Um, and questions that I've always asked myself is, you know, if the war was about ending slavery, why did four northern states have slaves? Why did four union states have slaves? Maryland, Missouri, Delaware, Kentucky were all slave states. You know, three union states rejected the ratification of the 13th Amendment, New Jersey, Delaware, and Kentucky. Um, Lincoln, in his own words, and there's a lot of quotes and there's a lot of evidence to suggest or to conclude that Lincoln's motive to going to war was never about liberating slaves. It was always about preserving the Union. And I, I just grabbed a quick quote um, in, a, in a letter to Horace Greeley, who was, a, who was an editor at the New York Tri- uh, Tribune, and this was in 1862. Uh, My paramount objective in this struggle is to save the Union, and it is not either to save or destroy slavery. If I could save the Union without freeing any slave, I would do it. And if I could save it by freeing some and leaving others alone, I would also do that. And there's a lot of other uh, quotes uh, that, that, that are in the same theme. And, and, and um, I think that's not to say that slavery played no part in the Civil War either. I think, you know, what Henry and I have come you know, to agree on is that this is super complicated. Like slavery, slavery definitely did play a big part, you know, in, you know, why we went to war. Uh, but there was a bunch of other things too. Um, and, you know, we're going to go over uh, a number of the big points that um, people uh, talk about or sloganize, sloganeer, as you say, um, for what started the civil war. Why did, why did secession happen? You know, what was it all about? Was it states' rights? Was it tariffs? Was it slavery? Like, what was the whole deal? And I think, you know, we're not going to have any, like, conclusive, like conclusions per se, but we definitely are going to talk about a lot of those points and hopefully bring up a lot of, like, good context and, and some good research and evidence to help you better understand why the Civil War is complicated. All right. So, yeah, I, I think you laid that out well. Like, I'm not... Neither of us are going to try to make a case that, like, the, the, the slavery didn't uh, play a huge part in the war. Uh, that, that's not the case at all that we're trying to make. Uh, I'm not, we're not even trying to make, or at least I'm not trying to even make the case that slavery didn't, wasn't, like, a major or, if not, the premier part of the succession movements. I'm not trying to make that case either. I'm just saying that, that it's complicated and that the succession movement, as well as the war, they're kind of different things. You know, one, they're, they don't have the same causes, you know, like they're, they're different movements um, with, diff, with different motivations. And I don't think that it, the narrative that I ultimately reject is that, you know, the North, the Union invaded the South because they wanted to abolish slavery. Um, you know, my, my view has always been that they invaded the South for to, to ultimately preserve the preserve the United States of America, because, I mean, there would be no more full greater America region anymore rather than to uh, rather than some altruistic type reason, because every other nation in, in at least in the West 
Um, you know, every nation that I can think of besides maybe Haiti, who's, who uh, emancipated slavery through a slave revolt, and Egypt, uh, who did the same thing. But that, the Egypt, that, that was before, like, African slavery. Um, they had peaceful emancipation where they compensated the owners. And I think, in reality, I think that probably could have happened uh, in the United States at some point. But I don't. Let's go. Let's maybe before we I ramble st- on too we much. Start with like with with the the big one on on like taxation because just before we started, um, you know, we almost got into it uh, about the idea that the South rebelled because of taxation, and you were saying uh, something to the tune of like you know the the South was paying you know eighty percent of the taxes in the entire nation, or at the very least some large percentage of the taxes in the entire nation. So I'm not making the case that the South ultimately succeeded because of the tariffs. Um, I think that was a reason. I don't think that it was like the I don't I, I would never make the claim that that the South. First of all, there's different succession movements. You know, there there were these succession movements were for different reasons. You know, South Carolina, Mississippi, Florida, Alabama, Georgia. You know, the, the Deep South succession movements, I think, were more rooted in, in, in protecting and preserving uh, institutions. It's set in their succession movement. It's that it's I mean, it's written out in, in a lot of the, the succession papers. Um, you could say that the succession papers may be aimed towards the the uh, the aristocrats in those regions who were slave owners. Uh, but I mean, nevertheless, I mean, they are written in there. Um, I think the later on succession movements like Virginia and North Carolina uh, they were more so motivated by the fact that the, that the Union was invading uh, than, than preserving slavery because, like, Virginia wanted peace. You know, Virginia was having all these peace conferences. They didn't, they, they didn't want war to break out because well, they yeah, knew the war were, would take place in Virginia. They were the middle person between, yeah, they were the middle person between uh, the U.S. and South Carolina, um, basically, uh, when Lincoln decided to march 75K troops you know, down to the Fort Sumter area. But um, I, I want to stick real quick, though, because we will talk about that um, to the taxation thing. So yeah, give me a second because there's a truck in the background. All right, I think I'm clear. All right, so was the South paying 80% of the taxes in the entire well, let's nation? Start, let's, let, all right, let's go back. Let's peel this back a little bit because it makes no sense to start there. But I, I kind of want origin. to because I, I like when I was doing this research, this came up all the time, especially in like comment sections of videos that I watch. Like, oh, they're paying I think so impo- much. Of the I think taxes. it's important to go over the origins of the tariff dispute and then get into the numbers because I, I think you need to lay some ground because some people may not even know what the tariff dispute was. I think, uh, fair, I think we should fair lay enough. that first. We, we can talk about tariffs, but I'll say one thing about taxes. And I think it's important to lay the groundwork here for the tariffs before the Civil War. There was no income taxes, property taxes, or sales taxes. Those things did not exist. The only taxation that was present in the United States at the time was tariffs on foreign goods. And with that, I'll, I'll hold my numbers to the side for a bit, but let's talk about like the origins of the, of the tariffs themselves. So, so uh, yeah, you're right. There was no, there was the, the, the majority of uh, federal revenue came from uh, came from tariffs on imported goods and and the tariff disputes uh, they they really heavily influenced American economic policy 
Uh, they were the dominant source of federal government revenue in the 19th century. And, I mean, when you think about it, the economic policy is kind of counterproductive from a, from a taxation perspective because protected goods that are, are taxed at a higher rate, they can be excluded from importation. Therefore, they don't create any revenue. However, the, the thing with terror, uh, tariffs is that tax revenue is really not their only objective. Uh, terrorists target imported products from abroad to protect domestic industries. And it was, it was Alexander Hamilton who laid the groundwork for this strategy. You know, he wanted to use trade regulations to promote infant industries against European competitors. And when the U.S. started trading again with, with Great Britain after the war in 1812, uh, terrorists became a huge national, they, they became a really big deal in national politics again. Um, and you see this schism there, there became these two competing economic visions for this for the country. Um, for example, you had Henry Clay on the protectionist side who, who, um, adapted or, or adopted Hamilton's arguments. And he proposed things like, you know, really high protective tariffs on manufactured goods. You know, he wanted to exclude European producers and, and subsidize, uh, infrastructure like roads and canals and harbors and things like that. Right, and what and you're talking this, about is the American system. That's what. Yeah, that's what that was called. This was the American system, like the old school, uh, classic Whig, uh, Henry Clay protectionist system. Fucking Whig party. The the Whig the Whig party. When I was younger, when I used to look at like history textbooks and I would look at presidents and I would see Whig, I'd be like, "What the fuck is a Whig?" <laughs> like, I would, yeah, same. <laughs> did you ever? I I think every student had that because everyone, when you're in like sixth grade or sixth seventh grade, you you know what Republican and Democrat is by then. But you're like, what's a wick? <laughs> yeah, it's like there's another thing. <laughs> Where are they now? <laughs> what the? What the? Why do they? What a stupid name! Like yeah. that was my thought. Like why do they call themselves the Wigs? It's like also you spelled wig wrong, bro. <laughs> it's like I get Republican or Democrat because they like mean something. You know, to in their like uh, words in the vocabulary vocabulary yeah. of like fairness, justice, and liberty. But there like, was another wait. there was another one in that time. It was like American or something like that, like an American party. Am there I was like that there was a, a Republican Democratic party. There was uh, there is um, those are the three that Whig were they those are the major parties. But um, what's interesting is that Democrats back then were kind of more i don't want to say any political party back in the 19th century mirrored the current political parties that we have right now yeah they were but, very different. Yeah. but they were very different than they are right now like the democrats and the republicans the the democrats from back then they they kind of were the successors of the jeffersonian republicans and the whigs uh which eventually kind of transformed into the modern day gop the republican party as we know Grand it old party that was uh, a that came from the federalist type Alexander Hamilton uh, vision of yeah. the country. I hear a lot but, of people like describe the the shift in the parties as like, oh, back in the day, the Democrats were the Republicans and the Republicans were the Democrats, and I think that's not that's not a fair um, representation there. Uh, it, it it wasn't like that. It was it was a bit more complicated. Yeah, it was a lot more complicated, but the Democratic Party were, a.k.a. the Jeffersonian Republicans who opposed tariffs. And, you know, the reasons what they would lay out is that are, are good reasons. They're reasons that I think a lot of people would, would believe. Like, it's the same reasons why I usually speak out against 
tariffs. I think Danny and I, you, we have the same positions on tariffs. Like yeah, we in do. The contempor- contempor- we're, we're free. We're free market trader guys. Yep. And um, my my biggest issue with tariffs is that they can be corrupted through political lobbying. Very easy. Very easily. Very easy. Like yep. mm-hmm. look at look at like the sugar industry in the U.S. Like look at the lobbying that goes on in like an American agriculture. Mm-hmm. It's 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 a there's there's a lot, and they also penalize sectors while benefiting benefiting others so you're putting the position for the government to issue out corporate favoritism based off industries because you can you know open and shut the doors open whenever whenever you want so i've always been a very big critic of of tariffs for those reasons yeah like if you're if you're a merchant who does a lot of trade with europe at this time you're screwed and agriculture is a heavy export sector so this caused like a really big schism. This is kind of like where the regional schism starts of North and South, uh, you know, Northeastern manufacturers and, and cotton producers, uh, you know, along with there's a coalition of cotton producers and merchants and, and people who are doing trade with Europe, but it kind of pitted different sides against each other. So, I mean, I, I, I agree with you on a, on a lot of fronts. Like, I, I'm not for tariffs. Um, and uh, one of our viewers here, Justin Gorley, says, like, how do we stop the short-sighted outsourcing of manufacturing then? And I think that's it's kind of an important point. And, you know, I, I think one thing I'd like to point out um, is, like, these tariffs didn't spring up, like, in a vacuum, like, out of nowhere for no reason. Like, they were put in place for a very specific reason, and that was primarily uh, in this time because of the Panic of 1819. Uh, so the Panic of 1819 was like, for many historians, was the, like the true first Great Depression. Um, and basically what happened here was that the second U.S. bank, which was a federal bank, uh, they were basically issuing currency completely unregulated, right? Um, part of the reason why they were doing this was because after the War of 1812, there was like a huge need for agriculture exports to Europe while they were rebuilding. Um, and also the government, you know, domestically was uh, encouraging basically land speculation and printing more money to get it done, right? So they were saying like, yeah, cool, we're going to invest in land because we're going to grow crops and we're going to send it over to Europe. We're going to make money, Um but it was super lax and they were just basically like printing money, money, money. Like the money printer goes, um, and at a certain juncture, it wasn't working very well. So to compensate for that lack of regulation, the federal bank basically cut back heavily on loans to state banks. Uh, and then when the federal banks couldn't produce the gold that the currency was backed up by, um, you know, to those states, the states then turned around and started foreclosing on mortgages, on farms and other properties, you know, which caused obviously a crazy um, spot, like downward spiral in the economy. And that's what's known as the, the panic of 1819. Now I'm talking about this because this is, you know, the tariffs that were put in place, the American system was brought about because like as a response to this, right, to try and do something about the, the plummeting economy. Um, and so, as you said, uh, Henry uh, Clay and, and Congressman uh, John Calhoun, they, they concocted this idea. And, and as you pointed out, you know, the the we, we let, let me start over. So basically the traditional ideas of like constitutional, you know, 
adherence were like super hard to follow in this time, you know, um, at least according to folks like Henry Clay and John Calhoun, because, you know, there were difficulties post-war from a lack of in- infrastructure. There was total unregulation of banking, which was causing a huge problem. Um, there was a shortage of manufactured goods, and there was also uh, a desire, like a positive desire to, to, you know, start developing the natural resources in the West. Um, and, you know, U.S. manufacturers at this time were basically swamped with British products. So, you know, Justin, to your point here, um, this is this was a, an issue, right? British products were produced by super low paid workers, you know, uh, overseas and were priced super below competitive rates here in the United States. And frankly, that just forced a lot of like American factories out of business. So, you know, when we think about the tariffs, we're not thinking exclusively like, oh, all these corporations got together and decided to put together a tariff for, you know, just because they're greedy. That was part of it. But a big part of it, probably the bigger part of it was in response to the plummeting economy. So as you pointed out earlier, you know, the American system was trying to stabilize the economy by centralizing um, and regulating bank systems, which, you know, libertarians probably don't like very much. Um, and then also increasing infrastructure through roads and railways uh, so that they can better um, connect the union, you know, through, you know, all of their economies could be connected better if there's more transportation. Um, but that costs money. So in order to make this happen, uh, they decided to levy some tariffs, tariffs um, against those those foreign products, you know, uh, to raise the money for the infrastructure and also to protect domestic manufacturing. Um, and Jefferson also, he put tariffs, he had an embargo on Britain because, sorry, there's like a ringing noise in my ear. Do you hear that too? Or am I just going crazy? No, that's just you. <laughs> okay. It may, it may be one of my concussions coming back. Um, <laughs> Jefferson put, Jefferson put tariffs on, uh, he had an embargo on England, but Great Britain was was kidnapping sailors, and forcing them to fight, forcing them to fight in the in the British Navy. So that was out of response. So I mean, yeah. Jefferson did it as well. But yeah, it was it was a main re- uh, revenue generating tool. However, tariff hikes really started to increase by by eighteen twenty eight. Like yep. it, re- it started reaching its historic peak. That's right. And um, they taxes on imported goods were at thirty eight percent. Uh, there was a 45% tax on uh, imported raw materials or selective raw materials. Right. Uh, there was increased the there was increased the cost of it ended up increasing the cost of goods for the South, which really relied heavily on imported goods, and right. it re- reduced the amount of British goods sold to the South, and ultimately made it more difficult for the British to pay to pay for Southern cotton. And I mean, it, it was called the, the tariff of abominations. Yep. Like the South, the South freaked out, and yep. they made revisions to the tariff. How, however, the revisions that they made, uh, the compromise provisions that they made, didn't really do enough to keep South Carolina from adopting an ordinance of, of nullification to void the tariff. Yep. So let's, let's talk about why before we get into the compromise tariffs, because the tariff of abominations is like super important, especially uh, when we talk about like tariffs as a reason for secession. Um, so I read this, um, uh, forget exactly where I should have probably wrote that down. Um, but they, there was this article that I read that really spelled out like this kind of circle of poverty um, that was caused by, uh, you know, 
in, in the South by the tariffs. So it went something like this. So basically it started with the tariffs were stifling competition um, between uh, northern manufactured goods and foreign manufactured goods, right? So because we had a protectionist tariff, uh, any foreign manufactured good that come into the United States uh, would cost more and therefore wouldn't be competitive against domestically produced, you know, equal goods. And so what this allowed was northern manufacturers to charge more for their products than they normally would because they don't have to compete with super cheap labor abroad anymore, right? Because now they're, those products are more expensive. Now, the South didn't manufacture goods. They consumed them. And so the profits largely went north, right? So a lot of the a lot of the profits of this tariff went straight to the northern manufacturing states, and to to compound this a bit more, European countries started exporting less to the United States because the tariffs were expensive and they just couldn't sell as much. Therefore, the South, which is largely agrarian, like they were farming shit, they they were basically exporting less to the um, to Europe, right? Because if European countries are exporting less, then the raw materials that they need would be less. Therefore, the South loses out. Also, the South uh, was fearful of like retaliatory tariffs on their goods, specifically cotton. Um, like they thought that Europe was going to put a bunch of tariffs on them because we put tariffs on on them. And I guess that makes sense. Um, but I couldn't find any evidence of this. So you know, someone can correct me if I'm wrong. But I'm my guess is that it never happened. Um, altogether, though, the, the South just made less money, mostly because they made less money through exporting to Europe, and they weren't seeing any of the profits from the manufactured goods in the North like the North was. And to top it all off, they were paying more money for the products that they were consuming that were created in the North. So less less revenue for them, more expensive goods, less exports for them. So like, it makes sense. You know, uh, it, it totally makes sense that um, they would be opposed to these tariffs specifically because, you know, it was hurting them, you know, in this way. But I want to make clear, and this is where I can jump to some numbers. And this is the same thing. I just want to add something real quick. This is the same thing that happens in like every single Middle Eastern country or has happened in every single Middle Eastern country in the 20th century, like after the British Empire left. All of them adopt had this kind of. All of them had this type of like uh, political system or economic system where they completely uh, stopped letting in foreign imports and started relying on their own manufacturing base, and they did it to protect their industries. And what they ended up doing, especially in the case of Egypt, they ended up uh, really uh, kind of it was there was a lot of regional scapegoating going on in the agriculture industry in Egypt, because Egypt has a large agriculture sector. Uh, so the same thing happens today. Just kind of imagine it in like a context in the United right. States. And, and that's where you get that sectional divide, right? So the, the, the more rural regions that's growing all the raw or, or that's yielding all the raw materials, they don't see all of the positive benefits of protectionism, whereas the more industrial centers of, um, of a particular country will see huge uh, profits out of it. So it, it does cause a schism. It does cause that divide. But I do want to make very clear that the South wasn't paying more in taxes or in tariffs than anyone else. This is actually totally wrong. Um, so 
as I said before, there were no taxes. It's just tariffs. And if we're looking specifically at tariffs from 1859 to 1860, and this is the year before the war here, uh, $233.7 million worth of foreign goods were brought into New York ports. 203 million of those were subject to tariffs. In that same period, all of the other American ports combined, north and south, brought in only $128.5 million in foreign goods, of which only $76.5 million were subject to tariffs. So by the magic of math, in no way was the South paying even close to the majority of the taxes in the U.S. This wasn't a thing. So if we do the math, it's $203 million plus $76.5 million, that's everybody else, for total uh, revenue uh, that is taxable. That's two hundred and seventy-nine point five million in total taxable revenue. Now, if New York is is doing 203 million of the total 279 and a half million, then that means New York is paying 72.7% of the share of all of the foreign goods subject to the tariffs in the US. So New York alone provided the overwhelming majority of the ter- of the government's the US government's revenue in that year and in the previous 5 years as well. So if anyone has a reason uh, to secede because of tariffs alone, it probably would have been New York. Well, the moral, the moral tax that, you're, that, that came later um, wasn't passed until 1860. It wasn't passed until 1861, which is a good point, right? So there were tariffs like the tariff of abominations, and then in between those there were many, many other tariffs that I'd like to talk about in a bit, but I'm glad you brought up the moral tariff because this one was the one that a lot of people really stick to for like a reason why the South seceded, but that's just not true based on timeline because the moral tariff you know, was a reaction to the, the secondary panic of 1857 to try and help the economy, and... It was a 40% tariff on goods, which was fucking crazy high, but it only passed Congress in 1861. And the fucked up crazy part of this is the reason why it passed was because the southern states seceded. When the southern states seceded, it created a supermajority in in the Congress of northern states versus southern states, right? So southern states pull out, leaves a power vacuum in Congress— and the North absolutely capitalized on that supermajority. So, like, just think about it, like, contemporarily. It's t- imagine if today Texas and Florida by themselves, they, they have some of the most, you know, uh, con- uh, congressional seats. They have some of the most uh, uh, delegates, right? Imagine if they decided to secede right now. But all the other Republican states stayed, right? The right would massively lose delegates and House seats. It would It would literally be a liberal field day, right? You can... Kiss away your guns, the fossil fuel industry, like all that shit's going to be gone in a heartbeat, right? And the opposite would be true if we said that New York and California seceded today. It would be a conservative utopia. So while I disagree that, you know, with the idea of tariffs in general, I think considering this was the only form of taxation at the time and that some southern states basically just left the table, it makes total sense how the tariff was put into play and how this totally, you know, uh, came about. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. 
On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And well, Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, go ahead. I was, was going to add. Um, so... You know what? What you're, what Danny is saying is that they ended up reforming the tariff schedule uh, between after the tariff abomination. They ended up reforming the tariff schedule, and there was actually a high watermark of free trade going on in the U.S. But in 1857, there was a financial crisis, like a really big one, and the crisis was was due to a combination of like you know price shocks and land bubbles and, and corruption and, mm-hmm. and the railroad bond market and stuff like that. Right. But you know. Politicians, the remedy to that was was uh, put more tariffs, or at least the blame of why there was an economic sh- economic crisis was that you know, there were lax tariff laws. Mm-hmm. You know, kind of mm-hmm. like Trump when he was right. running in 2016, he ran uh, on. Look at China. On, we have a we have a trade deficit China. with China. China. And uh, Buchanan, President Buchanan. Um, the, the prior year in 1850, at the end of 1859, he requested a revision of the tariff schedule. And he was a Democrat. And, you know, that was supposed to be the free trade party. But he was also from Pennsylvania, which was home to the iron industry who wanted these protectionist laws in place. Right, exactly. So the moral tariff that comes out of this that, that's passed in, in, um, in uh, 1860 um, its initial motive was to resolve the financial crisis, but it was a shockingly protectionist law. And as most protectionist policies are, it was the direct, you know, it was a, a direct product of, of corrupt arrangements between, you know, members of Congress and, and private industries that yep. were benefiting from the taxes that were placed upon foreign competitors. Yep. And it you was could even say to, that this was the introduction of like corporatism in legislation. You could definitely. Um, that's a that's a really good point. I that's a that's that's a point that I was hoping that you would make. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's that's that. I think that is a huge introduction to like corp like the the, uh, the end of the separation of business and state. Like it, it's just, I mean, like not to say that there ever was one, but <laughs> like this. This is kind of like a huge moment, I think, in history where 
you know, the state and business kind of merge together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. And, and, you know, the thing about this is that because there was such a, because there was such a backlash about um, tariffs, specifically in the South, there was a lot of talks about the, the state's rights issue of the nullification of tariffs. So you started bringing this up, right? And so basically states like South Carolina were threatening to say, this law is bullshit, I'm not going to do it, um, because they felt that it was unconstitutional. Um, now, we obviously already went over tariffs and why they're bad, but you know, also, you know, I think to this point I want to make is that the nullification issue uh, is that southern states, when they participate in legislation, they actually had some good chances and won in some cases uh, ways to find middle grounds on the tariff issue itself, or at least more tolerable uh, legislation for them. So, you know, tariff abominations we talked about, that was a 38 percent tax um, and 48 percent. 45% tax on certain imported raw materials, uh, which I think is a little ironic because um, raw materials was what, you know, they were exporting, the South, that is. Um, so th- they should be behind it, but I digress. Uh, basically, it, it was totally unacceptable for them. They called it the tariff of abomination, you know? And then in 1833, as you were saying, the compromise tax cup comes up, and this is when Andrew Jackson was in power. Um, and what the compromise tax was was that uh, they wanted to gradually cut the the tariff over the next 10 years so that by 1842 they matched the level of the tariff of 1816, which is much more favorable. I think it was 20%. And it actually worked, right? So for 10 years, they were gradually decreasing the tariffs, you know, and it was fine and dandy for a while. And then, <clears throat> well... A new crazy-ass tariff hit after that. So that was the Black Tariff of 1842. It basically reversed all of the compromise tariff and mostly benefited, as you said, the iron industry. And iron is in a southern industry. They weren't producing iron. It sucked balls. It it had a 32% rate, um, and it caused basically a sharp decline in global trade, and that was all the Whig Party. Um, But... Right after the, uh, uh, four years after they did the Black Tariff in 1842, in 1846, um, under uh, a Southern Democratic rule, um, we see the Walker Tariff, which brought the, ta- the tariff rate back down to 25. So uh, I'm throwing a lot of numbers out here and a lot of different tariffs. Um, but what I'm trying to point out is that, you know, it wasn't a pity party for the South, you know, the whole time, like, oh, boohoo, they're levying so many taxes against us and we have no power to change it, Right. They won their share of legislative victories when they participated, you know, and I guess, you know, to that point, they, you know, for a number of reasons, not just tariffs, you know, um, many states decided to secede at that juncture. Now they've lost basically any chance of winning legislation, you know, uh, in their favor uh, on the tariff idea. But, you know, I think I find some trouble with tariffs in general, because I disagree with them, but I think there's trouble in the logic here because the South could, they could not, or maybe they just didn't want to expand the scope of their economy. I think there was a serious inherent weakness with the South's economy, you know, namely undiversified production. So they were mostly producing cotton. Um, They had a very low adoption rate of mechanization in farming. And that's obviously largely due to the fact that they were using slavery. Uh, as their method of, of um, harvest. Uh, and this is compounded by the uh, idea that the South had to expand slavery into the Western territory. So 
it's not that they just didn't want to uh, mechanize. They wanted to use slaves. They wanted to do more of the same thing, right? They wanted to expand slavery and not ex- and not get into mechanization. Um, and then they definitely had an aversion to the centralization of the U.S. through the infrastructure projects. Like they were very pissed about that, um, which I don't really find. I don't think it makes a ton of sense because infrastructure projects like roads and bridges and, and railways would have benefited them because they they would have had the ability to do more interstate trading, which would have made up for the at least in part would have made up for the decrease in the um, in their foreign exports. If they can move their product more easily inside the, the country, like, why wouldn't you get behind that? But they weren't. And I mean, what I'm trying to say is that the, the southern economy was a one-trick pony. I mean, th- think about, like, like Middle Eastern oil states, right? As soon as the oil prices go up, their economies get crippled, right? On the other hand, we, we look at the north, right? So the north had a very diverse economy. So they manufactured 90% of all the goods made in America at the time. So we're talking 17 times more textiles, 30 times more shoes and boots, 13 times more iron, 32 times more firearms. Uh, they can distribute those products way easier. They had 20,000 miles of rail versus the South's 10,000 miles of rail. Also, that's an important point for like the actual fact that they won the war. They were able to move their troops easier. Um, and while it's true that the North was a powerhouse for manufacturing, what a lot of people don't know is that they also crushed agriculture too. They produced far more crops than in the South, like food crops. And mostly because they were heavily adopting mechanization in their farms. And and just the elephant in the room here is that the North did all of this with a free labor force that they had to pay. Right. So I think that if the South had decided to better diversify their economy and take advantage of those infrastructure projects that were planned, it's totally possible that they could have had it. They could have been just as strong as the North, if if not stronger, because they had free slave labor. So for this reason, I, I find the, it really the economic. The, the economics of slavery is terrible. Like at that, at that, like slavery, it's it's all right. Obviously, like it's morally imp- like Repugnant, unforgivably yeah. mm-hmm. terrible. Like right. you know, it's an awful, awful, awful practice. Um, but also, the, it's economically stupid as well. Like there's a lot of studies that show how how like dumb uh, the the economics of slavery are because you have to pay for the the room and board of of your slaves which increase the cost of of producing your crops right i mean if you're, if you're going to compare slavery to say like a machine plowing the field then yeah without a doubt it's way cheaper to to use a fucking machine than it is a slave like it's way it's way it's way cheaper to to uh, innovate than to than to uh, well it's not cheaper but it's it's more cost effective to innovate you know it, it's it's interesting I, I heard that I heard a point once uh, about the Roman Empire you know the Roman Empire the Roman Empire practiced slavery mm-hmm. um, they were a powerhouse for centuries and uh, I heard someone said that. You ever wonder the reason why the Romans didn't reach the moon was because they relied on slavery? Like there is no <laughs> I didn't pressure. Hear that. That's awesome. <laughs> there's no because there is no pressure to innovate when you already have someone doing stuff for you doing your for, work mm-hmm. for doing your work for you. Yeah. So there's no pressure of innov- innovation that comes from yeah. that. Yeah. And I think that's an, I think that's a really interesting point. <clears throat> 
how um, relying on slave labor is obviously um, awful, but also stupid for any type of development and, and, and backwards. Like, right. it's 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 a backward, it's backwards as fuck. Yeah. Um, it just doesn't make any sense. So, so that's why just I like. Clear, just I get, to clear, just to, <laughs> to, uh, to share that. I mean, I, I get super frustrated with the tariff thing because it's like, dude, you were already kind of, you already had like not a great economy to like set up in the first place. You, like the idea that the tariffs were the thing that were killing you. Like if they continued on, like, let's say, you know, we just let the South secede peacefully, like as you pointed out, it'd become a pariah state, you know, like they wouldn't be able to out produce and out economy the North, not, not on the system that they had that that wouldn't scale. Yeah, I, I I made the point before um, before we started recording that mm-hmm. if if the south if they just succeeded the south would have became a pariah state. Um, sorry for the sirens in the background. We have to record this thing on Skype, so we're gonna have to throw the audio right here, which will include all the the, uh, the background <laughs> noise of uh, gross New York City. But um, yeah, I think they would have became a pariah state because um, Britain was supportive of the Confederate cause during the first couple of years. However, um, you know, their, their public opinion started changing on the slavery debate. Um, one of the, I don't want to jump into the Emancipation Proclamation right now. We, we can get to that. But, you know, one of the reasons why they did that was to get to, to get support from, or at least for the PR in, in the Great Britain, because Great <laughs> Britain was not, had more, collectively, they had, they had more, more abolition for the for, yeah, they, for the Confederacy, mm-hmm. Confederacy when the war first started out, because they were free markets. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I don't, um, I don't um, subscribe that the succession was um, due to a hundred percent due to tariffs. Um, f- for the points that you know that you, I think, correctively you correctly made about them. Um, so let's get into like this, the actual succession movements, because sure. when we talk about succession, I think the most important thing, the, the reason why it's so complicated and, you know, history is just taught like, you know, South, North, North and South slavery, non-slavery. Um, you have to remember that there were, um, why am I, why is my math so bad right now? There was, uh, 11 succession movements. Yep. So eleven each succession, different ones. eleven different succession movements. Each state had to had to succeed from the union separately. A couple of and, the states did reference each other's succession movements yeah. as inspiration to one another. But you're you're right. Like each of them had a very different one. And I the deep South succession movements. Um, you know the ones that have uh, clear references to preserving the institutions of slavery. I mean. It, it's hard not to conclude that those were the major reasons when it was, you know, when they said that that's the reason why they did it. So, um, like the deep South States, South Carolina, Mississippi, Florida, um, Alabama, Georgia, Texas, Louisiana, um, you know, the original succession movement, um, prior to the battle of Fort Sumter, because there was a separate, there was an entire, when you think about it, that succession movement right there, if those States banded together, there wouldn't have been a civil war. 
if they didn't get Virginia and North Carolina. Those right. were the two biggest states in the Union. Right. I mean, excuse me, the two biggest states in the Confederacy. Mm-hmm. So they, I've heard that the succession, uh, a lot of the language in the succession papers was trying to appeal to the border states uh, like Virginia, North, uh, like Virginia um, and Maryland and Delaware. And, you know, it didn't ultimately work. So, but, you know, you know, what's wait, interesting about wait, that? Can you put it? Can you can you, do you put a pin on it? I had to pee really bad. So hold the fort. <laughs> and think about what you're going to say. Well, I mean, I don't think I have to think about it particularly. Um, so what I'm going to bring up whenever Henry gets his ass back here um, is talking about what are the breakdowns of each of the states, um, the initial four states that seceded. And now the initial four states were Georgia, Mississippi, Texas, and South Carolina. And I found this dope graph uh, online that basically uh, took all of the words uh, from each of their um, from each of their uh, secession papers and basically pie charted the shit out to show you what percentage of what theme and topic uh, each of them were talking about. Uh, and I also have a couple of quotes specifically around um, from Mississippi and Texas, which was, I mean, I ended up reading all four of these pa- uh, secessionist papers and it was wild uh, to read. It was like a roller coaster, in my opinion, because in some passages it seemed like. What would you What would you do if if I said I had to take a shit and I just left? Uh, <laughs> it was like Danny, I have to take a shit. I'll be right back. I mean, if that was the case, I'd probably just continue on like a liberal rant because you weren't av- <laughs> available. You only gave me like two minutes to to talk shit about you behind your back here, so that's not that's uh, not quite enough. Anyway. Uh, so- I I have to. This happens like every other episode. <laughs> I just I. Usually I just pee. I just I just piss my pants like I'm in the Tour de France. You know what I mean? Right. right. <laughs> like like I'm in the ocean, <laughs> and just deal with it, and, and just uh, sit in my puddle of pee. Yeah. While we did the podcast, but uh, this time, you know. Yeah. I have a, I have a pair of nice shorts on. I don't I don't want to I don't want to do that. <laughs> All right. Well, since you're back, let me finish my my point. I was gonna Henry, if you want to follow along, it's in the notes there. Uh, I'm gonna show the graphic the graph that I put in my notes um, there, and to cue you in, it's it's the distribution of the themes of the words in each of the four original secessionist papers. So Mississippi, Georgia. Um, I forgot them all. Let's just put it on the screen. So Georgia, Mississippi, Texas, South Carolina. And so when we look at these, um, the big red blobs in three of these here are is slavery, right? So Georgia, 56% slavery. Mississippi, 73% slavery. Uh, Texas, 54% slavery. South Carolina, not so bad, 20% slavery. But caveat to this is that they had 37 percent states rights and when you read the text of south carolina's everything they're talking about under the 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 topic where are of these states graphs were, from though where where are these graphs from like what are they these graphs were made by taking the text of each of the secessionist papers and basically word bubbling like what do they call it word clouding word clouding yeah it's basically when you take just raw text you spit it into a like a machine and it tells you like what are the main like it makes the word really big and then they were able to do data analysis on the on the words of the text and find out 
what are the what are the main points that the articles were um, talking about? So in this case, uh, as an example, I was just talking about South Carolina. They twenty percent of the entire text of their secessionist papers was talking directly about slavery. And the the interesting point that I'm trying to make here is that of the thirty of the thirty seven percent that they were talking about states' rights, a lot of it had to do with the states' rights uh, surrounding. Um, oh shit! What was that thing called again? Uh, the there was that, uh, help me out here. Nullification? No, no, not nullification. It's the one where they can go to the other states and reclaim their slaves that um, ran away. Uh, what was that called again? The, Fu- the Fugitive Slave Act? Thank you. Yeah. So, so like, being able to um, uh, claim their right of their property back. So a lot of, the, a lot of um, what was going on in, in these... In these texts, uh, were actually skewed pretty hard towards slavery, especially if you count a lot of the components of the states' rights uh, that were directly related to the right of their property. Um, and so, with this being said, I did have a couple of quotes, so I'm going to shut this off here and I'm going to move back over. Just some of the things that just jumped out of the page for me. Uh, so specifically around Mississippi and Texas, because they had the largest percentages, uh, of, um, slavery in their, um, texts. So Mississippi, uh, says, uh, it refuses the admission of new slave states. So the union, uh, they're referring to the union here. Uh, the union refuses the admission of new slave states into the union and seeks to extinguish it by confining it within its present limits denying the power of expansion. So they're talking about expanding slavery to uh, to different territories. And then they say, it has nullified the fugitive slave law. Ah, oh, there it is. The fugitive slave law in almost every free state in the Union and has utterly broken the compact which our fathers pledged their faith to maintain. And finally, from Mississippi, it advocates the Negro equality socially and politically and promotes insurrection and incendiarism in our midst right so just a couple of quotes from mississippi there texas man was texas a a a doozy that was this one's actually pretty long too um but it was like in my opinions they they wrote some of the most damning stuff um you know for their uh, position on slavery so they say that texas was received as a commonwealth holding maintaining the protection maintaining and protecting the institution known as negro slavery the servitude of the african to the white race within her limits a relation that has existed from the first settlement of her wilderness by the white race and which her people intended should exist in all future time you want to hold off let the siren go yep yeah we can pause for a second these fucking sirens all right um here's another one Uh, We hold as undeniable truths that the governments of the various states and their confederacy itself were established exclusively by the white race for themselves and their posterity, that the African race had no agency in their establishment, that they were rightfully held and regarded as an inferior and dependent race, and that in the condition only could their existence in this country be rendered beneficial or tolerable. And the last one from Texas, I promise. That in this free government, all white men are of outright ought to be entitled to equal civil and political rights. 
that the servitude of the African race as existing in these states is mutually beneficial to both bond and free and is abundantly authorized and justified by the experience of mankind and the revealed will of the almighty creator as recognized by all Christian nations while the destruction of the existing relations between the two races as advocated by our sectional enemies would bring inevitable calamities upon both and desolation upon the 15 slaveholding states. So I showed you a graph which kind of takes the text of each of the secessionist papers and we see a clear trend where the, the topical information in their text is largely skewing towards uh, you know, the up upholding slavery. And in their own documentation outlining the reason why these states left the Union, they clearly and continuously state that they're leaving either because they want to keep slaves or because they're mad that they can't exercise their state right to own slaves. So I know that we didn't set out to say, you know, definitively that slavery was the only reason why uh, these folks left. There were many reasons, right? There were others, but this is definitely the reason, the biggest reason, if you just look at what they said themselves, why they're leaving. Yeah, I mean that it, it's all it's written in the succession papers, and I want to be I want to be, be clear um, with. So, you want to look at the reason why. There's there's a lot of things that why they succeeded, um, and I'm sure I'm ignorant to a lot, but I want to make a point on the. Um, the North's view on slavery. Sure. Now, I'm not doubting. Fair. I'm not. Yeah. I'm not saying that the North, um, there weren't abolitionists in the North. Like, of course there were. There, there were abolition abolitionists everywhere, and there was a lot of anti-slavery people in, in the North. Um, the president of the United States during the Civil War mm -hmm. made frequent uh, uh, capitulations to keep slavery in the south correct as far as almost enshrining it into the constitution in itself yep. to prevent the south from succeeding so abraham lincoln um he i'm, I'm gonna quote abraham lincoln so in his inauguration he says i have no purpose directly or indirectly to interfere with the institution of slavery in the states where it exists I believe I have no lawful right to do so, and I have no inclination to do so. Furthermore, those who nominated and elected me did so with full knowledge that I had made this in many similar declarations and had never recanted them. And more than this, they placed in the Republican Party for my acceptance. And as a law to themselves and to me, the clear empathetic resolution which i now read resolved that the maintenance and violate of the rights of the states and especially the rights of each state to order and control its own domestic institutions according to its own judgment exclusively is essentially essential to the balance of power on which the, per the perfection and endurance of our political fabric depend mm -hmm. so by domestic institutions he, he meant slavery and this is really interesting because I want to segue into this next. Sure. So I understand a proposed amendment to the Constitution has passed Congress to the effect that the federal government shall never interfere 
with the domestic institutions of the states, including that of persons held to service. To avoid misconstruction of what I've said, I depart from my purpose not to speak of the particular amendments so far as as to say that holding such a provision to now be implied in constitutional law, I have no objection to its being made express or irrevocable. So what he's referring to right now is the the Corwin Agreement, which was a last-ditch compromise to protect slavery where it existed and it was almost uh, slavery was almost enshrined into the constitution as an amendment (laughs) as as an amendment right and lincoln was this was two days prior this is signed two days prior to lincoln being inaugurated so it all it failed to to lure back secessionists. Right. So it it wasn't enough for for um, the states that had already succeeded to come back, and it actually benefited the the Union states that still had slavery. And what this I'll read it. No amendment shall be made to the Constitution which will authorize or give to Congress the power to abolish or interfere with any state. With the domestic institutions thereof, including that of a person's held to labor or service by the laws of said state. Mm -hmm. And what's really interesting is that Lincoln said that he had not seen the amendment. And that was actually a huge lie because the Corwin Agreement was his idea. Based on a lot of things that I've read, it was his idea. Mm -hmm. And he was an unidentified co-author of the actual bill. So... This is why I, I I hate sloganeering. The Great Emancipator almost enshrined slavery into the Constitution. That's right. Now, what was his like views on on slavery? Like, what what did he want to do? He wanted to prevent slavery from um, being included into the new territories. Like right. that was that was the, the debate. He basically and, wanted to say, if you have slaves, you're good, but no new slaves. Yeah, exactly. No, 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 new slaves, and a lot of the, a lot of that was for uh, political reasons from the Republican Party. They, they, they didn't oppose slavery in their 1860 campaign. They only extend, they only opposed it the extension to, into new territories, and they wanted to preserve those. I think one could, one could. Um, could come to a conclusion or or think that they wanted to keep slavery out of those because they wanted to preserve those territories for white labor. Lincoln, Illinois, Lincoln's own state. We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money and not just your own. To follow trends, track financial situations, follow gains and losses, check out the Yahoo Finance podcast. Every day, we'll give you a quick overview of the latest market and financial news that you need to know. You'll be able to hear about the biggest headlines in the business world in three minutes or less, right after markets close. It's perfect to listen to while you make another cup of coffee or work out a new budget. Check it out now. Listen to Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance, wherever you get your podcasts. It had an amendment in its constitution to prohibit 
the immigration of free blacks into the state. That's and right. Lincoln strange. also was was this is really weird stuff. Lincoln was like he fetished that he he was people like kind of talk about how Lincoln wanted to deport uh Africans, African slave blacks right. to Liberia. He was into it. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a historian that, I, a really good Civil War historian that really writes a lot about this. Uh, his name is um, Philip Mar Philip Margos. I'm, I'm from. Why is the last name uh, escaping me right now? But. He writes uh, like a lot about how he fetishized this, like he he it was something that he really fought for for, you know. Yeah, he was into it. it he he was really into it, and I was I pulled out some quotes from um, historian Michael Holt, um, who who wrote that many northern whites wanted to keep slaves out of the new territories in order to keep blacks out the north was a pervasively racist society bigots they sought to bar african-american slaves from the west northerners did not want to have to compete for jobs with black people free or slave lincoln himself said that we want to preserve the territories for free white labor if slaves were brought into the territories, it could inflate the congressional representation of the Democratic Party once right. a territory became a state because of the three-fifths clause of the Constitution that counted five slaves as three persons for purposes of determining how many congressional representatives each state would have. Right. The Republican Party feared that this might further block their economic policy agenda of high protectionist tariffs to protect northern manufacturers from competition. Mm-hmm. Corporate welfare for road, canal, and railroad building corporations, a national bank, and a giving away rather than selling of federal land, mostly to mining, timber, and railroad corporations. And Professor Holt quotes Ohio Congressman Joshua Giddings explaining, to give the South the preponderance of political power would be itself to surrender our tariff, our international improvements, a.k.a., you know, the corporate welfare, our distribution of proceeds of public land. So I want to dive deeper into, into like, Lincoln. And here is, and pull this back into, um, you know, the, the, who Abraham Lincoln was. He was a, a Henry Clay Whig. He his well, he election, yeah. yeah. He was his his election was subsidized by the Pennsylvania railroad industry, and he was expected to come in and enforce a lot of these tariffs, these the, the more the moral tariffs. And you know, here I have a quote from Lincoln. It just kind of like sounds sleazy. My politics are short and sweet, like the old woman's dance. I'm in favor of a national bank, in favor of the internal improvement system, and a high protective tariff. <laughs> I was looking at these uh, old Lincoln quotes from uh, when he was campaigning in Pennsylvania. And they are I, – I can't pull this thing up. I, like, I lost the file, and I have to like pay for it now for some reason. But um, it was like – I'm, I was like, I'm no. He's like, I don't know economics well, but I do know if I give my wife a, a twenty dollars to buy a dress, and then she buys it from England, they have the twenty. Like, they've got they have twenty dollars, the and then we have the dress. <laughs> if I give her to 
if she pays buys it in America, then we she has the we have the dress and the twenty dollars. Like it's just <laughs> and there's like a million he phrases that like over and over and over and over again. Like with with, with different items. Like mm-hmm. if I bought a uh a, no a, a pair of shoes. A pair of pair of shoe a boots. <laughs> if I bought boots from England like so it's it's um I mean, you got to remember, like, a, Lincoln was This is the 1860s. Fucking... Everyone, yeah, <laughs> this is, this like... is the 1860s. Everyone's a racist asshole in the right. 1860s. And, and also, he's a politician, so it's like, on top of being a racist asshole, he's a politician. So you got to remember, like, in order to get elected, you have to kind of pander to both sides, right? And so, you know, regardless of what his well, position is... Well, you have to. Yeah, you absolutely have to. Like, you can't, ex- you can't exclusively say, I'm only for, you know, tariffs and also not throw a bone to the slaveholders. Otherwise, you're just not going to get elected. It's just not going to work. Well, with Lincoln, he... What's interesting is that Illinois, a lot of the copperheads were in Illinois. Mm-hmm. Like, the, the Democrats who opposed the North, who were against the war. Right. And... um he had to um kind of be at behest of the you know pennsylvania and new jersey like the the states that that had these large industries that wanted protection a protection of terror uh, to, uh i almost said terrorist tariffs <laughs> terrorist. and <laughs> illinois and illinois uh which was like you know besides chicago a lot of it was ag and they didn't want they didn't want to uh, the high the high protectionist tariffs. Right. You know another another point I, I wanted to make this earlier, but I forgot. And and this is kind of goes back to just like the reasons for succession. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like Palestine. Like if you looked at a state of like pro union and you know pro confederacy in the South, it would kind of look like Palestine right now, like mm-hmm. the West Bank, mm-hmm. because there are pockets in the South that were pro union. You know, it right. was really based off. You know what were your trade relationships like right you know for example north carolina is a really good example because north carolina um on the um on the east coast on the outer banks area they don't have in the outer banks there's a bunch of islands so you can't get a trans trans uh, trans uh, a transatlantic ship mm-hmm. over those islands that the, the ship would be wrecked right so they didn't have uh, like trade, like a with, deep water with port. your yeah. trip. Their their trading was up up in you know the the northeast. So like they didn't want to they didn't want to succeed from the union. Are you crazy? Like why would they like that? That wouldn't make sense for them. And you have different pockets that are that are pro union uh, within the South because you know everyone wants the best economic like. Everyone wants the best economic system for themselves, right? You know, not everybody just, wholeheartedly believed in the idea uh, that you know the South could generate enough, you know, of an economy by themselves. They liked the goods that were being manufactured in the North. But going back to the you know the what I was saying about Lincoln is that so yeah, tariffs may have not been the cause of succession, but could have tariffs been the cause for for war so um thomas d lorenzo is a he, he definitely paints this he's a he's a economist and uh he definitely uh, is you know one of the he, he's a 
he's a libertarian writer um, from you know the Austrian school, and it, he has some a lot of uh, books about Lincoln, and he makes the case that you know Lincoln was a failed one-term congressman, would never have been elected had it not been to his career-long devotion to protectionism. And the 1861 moral tariff, which Lincoln was expected to enforce, was the event that triggered, triggered Lincoln's invasion, which resulted in the death of, of hundreds of, of thousands of Americans. Mm-hmm. And in 1860, uh, Pennsylvania had the highest number of electoral votes in order to get the states, in order to get the states elect, electoral vote, you had to sign on to a protectionist tariff to benefit, benefit the state's steel industry. Um, Lincoln had established himself as a protectionist, and he received support from the entire Pennsylvania delegation. And there was a steel lobbyist named Henry C. Carey, uh, who who said it himself that you know without a high protection protectionist tariff, uh, Lincoln's administration would be dead before the day of inauguration. And you know, remember the bill did raise the average tariff from fifteen to thirty-seven percent. Yeah, it was a huge and it, yeah. and it expanded the list of covered items. Mm-hmm. So he was inspected to enforce that tariff law, and um, you know, Lincoln said in his inaugural address that he would he would invade the South if the tariff was not collected. Like the power confined in me, he said he we will be used to hold, occupy, and possess the property and places belonging to the government and to collect the duties and imposts. But beyond what may be necessary for the objects, there will be no invasion. Right. No using force against her amongst the people anywhere. Right. They just wanted the money. Now, <laughs> this, is, this is definitely like kind of a – this is the contrarian view, but I think it's something to think. I'm not – I'm not 100%. I, I don't necessarily agree 100% with all of this, but I think it's definitely something interesting to, to think about of the many factors that uh, encouraged Lincoln to, you know, ultimately uh, go into the South with an invading force. Well, you know, it's interesting that you bring that up because, like, I agree, you know, hit him where the money hurts, you know, like that money usually starts more wars than almost anything else, you know. Um Hold on, there's fucking fireworks going off in the background. Oh yeah, by the way, in New York City, there is, there are fireworks going off every five minutes. I promise it's not gunshots. <laughs> it literally is super close. I have a really good Dude. point to make too. As soon as this is over. <laughs> this is hilarious. Pop, 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 <laughs> pop. A little, you know, celebration of, of New York. <laughs> It's farting. Danny's farting <laughs> over and over right, and over I think, again. I think it might be over. Let me jump in here, though. I, I called some kids to, uh, lighting out fireworks yesterday. Did you give them a good scolding? No, I didn't say anything. They were kids. They were doing it. At, they were doing it in Central Park, and I'm, I'm not their parent. I'm not, like, I'm not the man. <laughs> like, I don't want to Yeah. Ref- <laughs> they were doing it on, if they were doing it in, like, the grassy area and, like, destroying, like, um, Central Park Habitat, so maybe. <laughs> Central Park Habitat. <laughs> yeah. Um, then I would, I maybe I would, you know, let you know be a be a position myself as a as a uh, sense of a, a someone authoritative. <laughs> but they were doing it on like the loop pavement path, and I was like, yeah. it's not. I wouldn't do anything if they were doing it somewhere else anyway. But yeah, I found it pretty funny that they were like, "Let's light fireworks." Anyway, um, all right. Sorry, so I had a point to make. So, um, 
it was all right so the 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 collecting of the dues right the duties the money right was definitely a motivating motivating factor to invade the south from the north i don't think that i i wouldn't disagree with that um however there there was some shit going down in the south leading up to the fort sumter um let's call it debacle uh that i think you can't ignore right because we, we get a lot of um a lot of folks in the south specifically refer to you know the war as the war of northern aggression right because the north did in fact invade the south and there were a number of atrocities committed you know um in the spirit of that war regardless of why it started right and so it's but we have to think about like it wasn't all one-sided again right so just much like the tariffs right um and how the south could have done something you know to better their economy or get on board you know legislatively to you know make favorable legislation for themselves in this case it wasn't just the north saying fuck you guys give me my money here's seventy-five thousand troops at your border right so the north did raise an army of seventy-five thousand, and they did so to uh, invade South Carolina after that Fort Sumter and visit um, incident. But in the four months leading up to Fort Sumter, the South made a ton of moves to beef up their military. And so a couple of points here. So in January of 1861, uh, the Alabama governor ordered the state militia to seize federal property, and they grabbed about three forts in that. Same month, a couple days later, a bunch of armed men marched uh, into federal into the federal arsenal in Florida and demanded the keys to the armory so they can grab all the guns. January, uh, January 10th, um, just a few weeks before the Louisiana secession, um, so before they seceded, a bunch of militias seized the forts and the armories in the state. February 8th, the Arkansas militia volunteers basically seized a federal arsenal and also marched some troops across state lines. Um, on March 6th, uh, the Provisional Confederate Congress authorized President Davis to raise an army of 100,000 for a 12-month subscri- uh, conscription. Subscription. 12-month <laughs> subscription to uh, the Confederate Army. Um, but yeah, no, 100,000. And then on April 12th, South Carolina fires on Fort Sumter. And then on April 15th, Lincoln calls for 75,000 troops. So it's not like Lincoln out of nowhere was just like, fuck you guys, we're coming to take the money. Bunch of shit happened in the South that led up to this, right? So they're taking all this federal land. They're taking guns, taking the armories, taking the ports, the forts, all the orts, and... Then they fire on on Fort Sumter, so like of course he's, of course the North is going to do something about that, you know. So they call for seventy five thousand troops, and then they decide to march it in, you know, down into the South. And obviously Virginia didn't like that very much because they'd have to cross through Virginia to get to South Carolina, which basically sputtered the war. But it, this isn't like a one sided thing, right? It's more complicated than that. So I've heard that. Uh, Fort Sumter was a tax collection. Um, it was. They, they were collecting ta- taxes at Fort Sumter. Yep, it was. I, I've heard, and I've always b- believed that, but I've heard other people try to debunk it, and I wasn't. I was always confused. I, I guess if you're if you're confirming if you're confirming uh, what I've heard initially, then 
Like there was a ta- there is there is a a tax collection uh, depot in, in in Charleston at the very least mm-hmm. that the fort was protecting. That's right. Um, but I think um, you know Lincoln made the, the the choice to to fortify you know Fort Sumter when when the Confederacy was. Um, you know, seizing those states, you know, under the guise that it was under their, their land and their property. So I think in a, in a lot of sense that, you know, Lincoln wanted to, you know, wanted to provoke a response. And no one died. Yeah, no one died. Like, it, the, the first casualties of the Civil War, uh, they were they were in Maryland. I mean, you could look at you could look at um, beefing up Fort Sumter as a provocation, but you can also look at it from before that and say the South made a mistake. I think the South made a huge mistake in, in falling for the bait. Like I 100%. thought that was dumb. But, but, like, it was like, huge. It was. It, it wasn't like expressly a provocation. That's that's what I'm trying to get at here. It was a response. You know, like they were trying to protect their money. Like be that as it may. Like you can be on whatever side of the tariff war you want to be on, but like that was their money supply. So they beefed it up, and in the months leading up to this point, they start seeing the southern um, militias taking up, uh, taking their forts and taking their armories and taking their ports. So like, no shit, they're gonna, they're they're gonna beef up Fort Sumter. Why wouldn't they? There's money there. <laughs> like, duh. And maybe it served a dual purpose, right? Maybe, on the one hand. They beefed up Fort Sumter to protect it because it was clear that at a, at some point they're gonna start um, t- they're gonna take Fort Sumter, right? So that's one hand on the one hand, and on the other hand, maybe they were also like, "Yeah, go ahead, try me. Give me a reason to to come into uh, to the South." It's possible that both is true, but it, it it certainly isn't like this like this sloganeering as you talk about in the beginning, where it's just like. All northern aggression, and the South is completely innocent, and they were just protecting themselves. Like they were doing shit too. Everybody was doing fucked up things. But the South was trying to, at the very least, they were trying to, to make peace with the North to prevent invasion. Because the the last thing, the last thing they wanted was to be invaded. And you have to, you have to remember, the the Civil War, the majority of the war was fought in Virginia. That's right. The majority of, like, it was without Virginia and North Carolina, the two states that, that succeeded after the after Fort Sumter, which I which I agree. I think firing on Fort Sumter was stupid. Like, was really, really dumb. Um, the, they were, they're, they're, the Civil War wouldn't have lasted three days. Like, they wouldn't have lasted at it, it, there wouldn't have been a war. Like it just would have been the Union would have marched in, and they would have, they would have put down, you know, the insurrection. But because they marched down, because they marched in the South, you lose all these other states. You lose Virginia. You lose North Carolina. You lose, uh, you know, Arkansas and Tennessee. And Virginia was um, very, very strong at the time. And Virginia was the place where all the best generals were from that's right you know and very strong militias great generals yeah and a lot of the veterans of the mexican-american war were were there too yeah no totally um you know it's it's a 
it's it's a fucking shitty situation and it's super complicated um because there was no let's just be completely honest like when the north invaded the south like this total the total war population that they had i mean the total war policy that they that they developed was counterproductive like yeah they they you know how we were talking about how there were you know there were pockets of 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 of, uh union supporting parts you know they're they're right people in the south who supported the union right well when you go and invade and you start burning down houses and destroying crops and looting and raping women yeah. Well, those people aren't going to be sympathetic anymore, yeah, and they, and they join opinion. the side of the rebellion. <laughs> yeah, you're not because, going to win public like, what, opinion that way. Like most, most, I think an important point is is that like most people, it's just like wars like these are just thrown onto their doorstep. You know, it's not like they're, it's not like the average person is like they didn't have any choosing choice. Yeah. to succeed. Yeah, it's not, it's not like the average farmer from Virginia or the average, the average, you know, whatever in North Carolina is like is. Even had slaves. The majority of Southerners did not own slaves. Um, I'm glad you, you bring know. that up because we got some questions about that, and I had some points too. Sure. So, you know, the, I I would largely agree with you on the fact that the majority of the Southern uh, like soldiers didn't own slaves. Uh, I think we got a question about the fact that you know uh, there was more mostly like a rich white guy kind of thing to own slaves and that makes sense because you you know it's it's as we spoke about already it's expensive to upkeep slaves do you know who was a slave owner pretty much general grant yep well actually wasn't his wife his wife's family a slave owner he married into a slave owning family yeah i mean same shit but still you know so you know the the question always comes up or at least the the idea is that the common southern soldier didn't fight for slavery because most were too poor to afford slaves and like why would they fight for something that they couldn't even own and i found some um while i think there's some truth some truth to that i also found some pretty interesting um points when i was doing uh research on that specific point um to find out like how much did slavery play a part you know in the common soldier and now i think the point i want to try to make here is that whether or not southern soldiers owned slaves it doesn't exactly explain away their desire to uphold slavery either. Um, so it was widely believed that emancipation would lead to what's called servile insurrection. So basically like what we would call today a race war, you know, and there's the uncomfortable fact that one third of the Southern population was enslaved. Um, so that's not great. Uh, and it wasn't just unfounded paranoia either, right? This wasn't like, uh, you know, it wasn't just paranoia. There was plenty of stories from abroad and at home of slaves rising up and killing their white masters. Like, uh, I think really good example. And um, one of our uh, viewers here uh, asked about it. Who, who said this? Uh, Marshall Maddox says you have to look at the, what happened uh, in Haiti. And I agree. So in 1791, so way before the Civil War, there was a slave rebellion um, that overthrew their white you know, French slavers and they formed the modern nation of Haiti. They basically murdered all of the white people in Haiti. Um, and just the idea that this could happen in the South was fucking terrifying. Um, and so to prevent this, uh, there was a lot of like laws that were put into place in the South that restricted slave movements and gatherings. They policed the shit out of slaves, um, because they really, really didn't want to, 
to have like a repeat Haiti as an example. Um, but you know, insurrection still happened, right? So as an example, 1831, pretty famous, um, situation, Nat Turner, uh, he was a slave. He enlisted 60 slaves, uh, for a rebellion and he killed all their masters. Uh, and then eventually they all died. Specifically, Turner was hung. Uh, in 1730, so much earlier, in South Carolina, 20 slaves broke into a store. They stole a bunch of weapons, and uh, they headed for the for basically Spanish-ruled Florida. Um, and they left probably 23 people dead. You know, they killed 23 people, um, most of which were white slave owners, but also just like innocent bystanders. Um, so. You know, you imagine like you're you're a southern soldier, right? So maybe you don't own slaves and maybe you don't particularly love the practice either. You know, but you hear these stories of what happens when slaves go free and you kind of immediately feel uncomfortable about it. There was this like common ideology in the time of the South that black slaves were animals to the southerners, both in the sense that they were property, right, and that they were savage and murderous. So Upholding slavery in this way, and I think, was akin to saving white families and neighbors from newly freed and angry slaves coming to exact some revenge on them. You know, and there's evidence um, of both Southerners and Northerners who were um, sympathetic to emancipating the slaves, as you point out. You know, there were pockets of people that were Northern sympathizers, not just to stay in the Union, but also abolitionists, right? But most of the people here were, were in favor of doing it gradually, because they believed that straight up outright abolition would cause massive insurrection, right? And would kill a lot of people. So basically you take this idea in conjunction with the fact that the success of the, you know, the Southern economy was predicated on slavery. And you get this, you know, for the common Southerner, slavery was good for the South, even if you didn't yourself own slaves. Well, yeah, Lincoln wanted to deport them to Liberia. And exactly. you know, as we mentioned, we wanted, you know, he was committed to the project. And I mean, it's hard, you, it's hard to really track down the individual motive of each person. I, I, I can guarantee you that a huge motive for a lot of people who fought for the South was the fact that they, that there was, there was like a regional state pride aspect of it. And, you know, they were invaded. Robert E. Lee, Robert E. Lee freed his slaves and he fought on the side of the south because he was from virginia like his loyalty to virginia outweighed his loyalty to the union um and i think the emancipation it's a good it's interesting to bring up the emancipation of proclamation because i think a lot of people think that this like freed the slaves which didn't free the slaves it was it was the 13th amendment that freed the slaves um and if you look at the language of it um all person that's held as slaves within any state or designated part of a state the people whereof shall be in rebellion against the u.s shall be then thenceforward and forever free and he specifically says that it only applies to rebel territory mm -hmm. so the whole point was to incite slave rebellions and it exempted areas outside of the of, of um it exempted areas uh, that were under union control. Right. So, like, they're trying to. They're, and he they called trying the to language. Say, like, called, immediately, you know, like immediately. Lincoln called it a war it. measure. Mm -hmm. uh, Lincoln called it a war a war measure. That's right. You know, meaning that if the war ended, you know, it would be null and void. Right. So it's like, 
um it's an interesting point that you brought up but yeah they used they used the emancipation of proclamation to to incite incite rebellions it, it was it was um right it wasn't until the 13th so Amendment. like if you were a su- if you were a southern you know soldier you're thinking well they're just trying to cut the you know the slaves free and they're just gonna all run around and kill us all you know and that is a scary prospect you know so it's it, it doesn't you, you don't have to be in favor of slavery per se to still think that slavery was was the better option as a southern soldier but un- unfortunately well, well actually fortunately i should say we see quite the opposite of what happens you know in hindsight we we see that after the civil war and after the abolition of slavery we don't see evidence of giant mass murders from for- former slave rebellions like killing their former masters in retribution quite the opposite we end up seeing an increase in violence, both physical and judicial, towards former slaves after the Civil War. You know, after the Civil War, you see a massive amounts of injustice. That's the, I mean, it's like comparing. It, it, it was black slaves, former slaves were treated terribly after the Civil War mm-hmm. um, in the North and in the South. Right. I it mean, was they, they switched disgusting. from subjugation of slavery to like judicial subjugation, basically. It's they were used to fight um, to um, like if there was a union on strike, they would bust up. They not bust, but they would they would um, use like uh, black migration as like a threat. Like and then they would fire them the next day. Like they were just they were just used and extorted um, uh, tremendously. And. Sometimes I th- like the optimal ending of slavery in the U.S. wouldn't have been through violence. It would have been through, you know, peaceful or or, or through compensa- through either compensation or through a peaceful resolution. And I think doing it in the model of you know every other country besides Haiti um, that ended slavery, you know, would have been a lot. I think better for everyone well it would have been better run. for everyone and it's but like the, the sad thing is though it's like because it would have taken longer it would have taken longer because you know in 19 in, in 1861 it wasn't you know I don't, I don't think it was possible to i don't know of any type of compensation if someone can correct me if i'm wrong like was there any type of an attempt for um compensation of uh emancipation through compensation like was there was there ever that because like, I mean that would have been cheaper like, than the war like compensating the slave owners yeah I, I don't know um, I don't know specifically if there were any ideas uh, around for that I mean I'm sure that would have been less that. expensive that would have been cheaper than the war yeah but itself also I don't know necessarily in hindsight if those folks knew what the cost of the war was going to be right like in in the time that Lincoln decided to march seventy five thousand troops you know to south carolina i don't i don't fully think he anticipated that virginia and and north carolina were going to flip so quickly i i kind of think that he thought it was just going to be a walk in the park like you like you said yeah i think that's i think that's what kind of hit it's like oh oh we don't have virginia and north carolina okay this is going to be this is going to be bad because like you know, I've been, I've been, I'm no expert on like Civil War battle history or anything like that. It is really fascinating, but you know, whoa, 
fucking, what was that? fucking trucks, man. <laughs> all the all the background music, back, background noise is going to be in this podcast most likely. So, <laughs> um, fucking truck. So, oh, what was the point I was going to make? Uh, God damn it! This is why we need new recording environments. <laughs> I'm so happy that we're this full. This is going to be really positive, the, guys. This might be the last recording where we have like a. You know this current situation, um, FYI. So, we've been podcasting for. I've had this microphone that I'm using for uh, for three years now. Mm-hmm. Guess how much money this microphone was? Uh, I already know. <laughs> it was pretty cheap. How much? How much I paid for it? I think you paid like what sixty bucks or something like that. Thirty bucks. Thirty. Oh, it was sixty dollars for the pair, right? Because you got two. I got two. I got is this this microphone from that uh that i've been using since bro history started is a 30 dollar usb microphone and um you're welcome <laughs> yeah I, it's i think it, it's gotten the job this far yeah. i think it's time for for an upgrade yeah. uh soon but it's kind of like a it's like a car that you got a hundred thousand you know what's a good i don't have a good con- conception of miles but you know a car that you got hundreds of thousands of miles off of for a long time without any without any damages well, it depends on if it's That's american or japanese you know if it's american it's like a car that you got eighty thousand miles off of <laughs> if it's japanese well, it's, it's like two hundred thousand miles <laughs> is my microphone japanese blue snowball no i think that's american i think uh, blue is american or swedish or some shit i don't know american Somebody tell us made what blue is. american made imagine if they did tariffs on like playstation or nintendo well uh Trump was going to um, do a tariff against China, and guess where all of the PlayStations and Nintendos are manufactured? Hello? China. I was also super upset about it when, um, for, like, drones and shit, because I was thinking about getting a new drone, and that would have made my drone-buying experience pretty shitty. So, yeah. We don't like tariffs on this podcast very much. So... Oh yeah, so I forgot the point I was gonna make, but yeah, Emancipation Proclamation was it used to incite rebellions. Um, also, I think it was used to, um, you know, get favor with the British, who were, you know, not pro-slavery, and at the time were more, you know, wanted less tariff restrictions so they could sell more products in America. Um, but there was like, is it, what's really, I think what a really interesting episode would be, uh, would be the talk about, um, I don't know, there's a lot of that different episodes that we could talk about because we're running at, I, I, was there any points that you wanted to make about the Civil War? Um, I mean, I think before, we got to, the, we're in an hour and 40 minutes. Yeah, I think we got to the majority of, of what I wanted to talk about. So, you know, we can, we can wrap it up and, you know, again, call to action here. Let us know. I just have a list. I have a list of, of Lincoln quotes, but I don't even think I could say them on, on here without getting in trouble because they're <laughs> so bad. But, All right, uh, give us one. Find... Give us one. Give us one of the nicer ones. Um, I am not nor ever have been in favor of bringing about in any way the social and political equality of the white and black races. I am not nor ever have been in favor of making voters or jurors uh, out of... I don't want to read the whole thing. I get uncomfortable reading this stuff. But, like, this is just reflective of how racist the time was, you know? Yeah, for sure. Like, everyone 
it, and you know Lincoln was I think Lincoln was kind of a weirdo and he had this kind of weird obsession with uh, white separatism. Um, it's interesting some of the you know some of the the comments that have been made outside the Civil War. I, Charles Dickens uh, was quoted of saying that you know this was whole this is uh, you know the, the northern onslaught upon slavery is no more than a piece of specious humbug designed to conceal its desire for economic control of the southern states. <laughs> um, Woodrow Wilson said that it was necessary to put the South at a moral disadvantage by transforming the contest from a war waged against states fighting for their independence into a war waged against states fighting for the maintenance of extension of slavery. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was a lot of like opinion. There, there's a lot of quotes like this, but I think an interesting episode would be talking about maybe like um, the impacts of the Civil War globally because you know you could think about like um, the invention of the weapon the weapons that were created during I, the I'd Civil be War very interested in that yeah and how they indirectly helped the British Empire expand the Gatling gun because then you know they saw what the Gatling gun could do <laughs> yeah um you could talk about how um, you know how the world picked up the slack for the lack of uh, of cotton mm-hmm. that was being produced. So I think that would be an interesting episode. I don't know, like, th- th- hopefully you guys like this. You like this episode, and you want us to talk more about it because Confederate um, submarines. <laughs> Confederate submarines. <laughs> That's a good idea, Marshall. <laughs> if. I mean, I'm inter- Danny and I are both obviously interested in, in in doing more podcasts on the subject. If you guys all want to hear them, uh, so let us know, like and subscribe. Say yes, do more podcasts on the subject, or no, go back to talking about uh, you know Middle East stuff, whatever. At the end of the day, we're probably going to end up doing what we find interesting anyway. Uh, so we're interested in this right now, but um, all right, we covered most stuff. I'm terrible at ending these shows, so I will just uh, thank you for for bearing with us uh, on uh, some of the background noise today. I know it's annoying, but um, I promise we promise that the audio problems are only going to get better with with our new setups. Um, and make sure that you uh, subscribe to this YouTube channel if you are. Uh, new to it if you're listening on audio uh, the majority of you are go to uh, uh, rate and review the podcast if you're on apple it's really helpful and uh, i guess subscribe or share it with any of your friends uh, any word danny uh just a reminder that we're going to take a little break uh so you'll be missing your bro history for a week uh so we'll come yeah. back to you guys afterwards we're breaking i think we've gone like almost a year without I think we've released an episode almost every single week for a year. So around that. Yeah. When so, was the last uh, time we took a break? Cause I think we only took, we only ever took one other break ever. And I think it was like around Christmas two years ago or some shit like that. I don't remember. Was, I don't, I don't remember. <laughs> All right. Well, see ya in July. Yeah. See ya in July. See ya.
See ya. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.